Episode 131. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. We ended the last episode just as Laertes arrived on stage and encouraged the Danes accompanying him to give him the room. We haven't seen him since he left for France in quite a light-hearted family scene, and now he's back, having heard news of what happened to Polonius, and quite rightly wants information. He doesn't beat around the bush. Oh, thou vile king, give me my father. Vile appears hundreds of times in Shakespeare. It's a handy one-syllable word, so it goes quite well into lines of blank verse. But it's a serious word, too. Using it to your king's face is an aggressive move. Claudius has to think on his feet. We already know that his battalions of sorrows have him a bit rattled, and so our eyes are on him to see how he's going to react. Interestingly, it's Gertrude who intervenes, encouraging the young man to act, as she says, calmly, good Laertes. De-escalation is a delicate art, of course, and Laertes is having absolutely none of it. His passionate response is quite extraordinary. That drop of blood that's calm proclaims me bastard, cries cuckold to my father, brands the harlot even here between the chase unsmirched brow of my true mother. He's saying that if a single drop of his blood is calm, it proclaims him a bastard announces that his father was betrayed by his mother and that she herself is branded as a whore. In other words, if he were to calm down now, it would suggest that he is not his father's son and that his mother was a harlot and slept with someone else. But he calls her his true mother, and so therefore he is Polonius's son and therefore, by extension, he will not calm down. It's worth noting that this is the only reference to Mrs Polonius, who doesn't even get a name, in the whole play. All the way back in Act 1, I shared a very good article about her, and I'll include it with the show notes for this episode again. Claudius has had a moment to strategize now, and he speaks up. What is the cause, Laertes, that thy rebellion looks so giant-like? Let him go, Gertrude. Do not fear our person. There's such divinity doth hedge a king, that treason can but peep to what it would, acts little of his will. Tell me, Laertes, why thou art thus incensed. Let him go, Gertrude. Speak, man. In that most triggering and arrogant of ways, Claudius asks Laertes why he's so upset. What can possibly have riled him like this? It's a classic bullying technique, deny any understanding of why someone might be reacting, as if to suggest that their problem doesn't even exist for you. What is the cause that thy rebellion looks so giant-like? Given the significant danger the king is in, he's got some neck talking like this. It even sounds like he's mocking Laertes, exaggerating the scale of his rebellion and his support. Giant isn't an especially common word in Shakespeare, and here giant-like might be a reference to Greek mythology. The Battle of the Giants, or the Gigantomachy, was fought after the race of giants rebelled against the gods of Mount Olympus and attempted to overthrow them. Worth mentioning, too, is that the giants did not win, and that Zeus and his crew quashed them entirely. So Claudius is quietly putting Laertes in his place, suggesting that his rebellion will likewise fail. Gertrude has presumably put herself between Laertes and her husband, and now Claudius tells her to let him go. Do not fear our person. 
Don't worry about any physical harm coming to me, he says. And with some outrageous arrogance, he continues, There's such divinity doth hedge a king that treason can but peep at what it would, acts little of his will. This man, who murdered his own brother for the crown, now has the audacity to announce that as a king he has a kind of divine protection that glows around him, and that it is so strong that attacks or treasons can barely get a look in. Attackers can but peep at what they would, and act little of their will. They can't achieve what they want to do. He's brazen enough to suggest that he has divinity surrounding him, that the divine right of kings applies even to him. Swaggering with such monumental arrogance is quite literally breathtaking. I suppose this is the point, an attempt to take the wind out of Laertes' puffed-up sails. Tell me, Laertes, he continues, why thou art thus incensed. Again, he's asking what's wrong, either refusing to acknowledge the issue, or just as bad, insisting that the young man speak it all aloud for the sadistic pleasure of watching him have to say it. Let him go, Gertrude, he repeats. Presumably she does, and now he looks him up and down again. Speak, man. In the course of this little speech, Claudius has puffed himself up, indirectly equating himself with Zeus or Jupiter, and then insisting on the divinity of his kingship. Meanwhile, he's suggested that Laertes is only one of the giants. But in case even this gives him any confidence, he cuts him right back down to size again now, and ends the speech by reminding him that he's just a man. We've spoken at various points about how sometimes lines of verse are divided between speakers for dramatic effect. Hamlet and Gertrude share a good few of them in the closet scene, but there's a very interesting version of it right here. Claudius and Laertes share a single line of verse. Speak, man, where is my father? Dead. Those are the three exchanges that make up the one line. Add up the syllables and you'll see that there are only eight of them. Of course, there should be ten. In the world of this rhythm, therefore, it seems like there should be a pause in there somewhere to make up for the missing ones. The logical place is before Claudius's answer. For dramatic effect, for the rhythm, for the tension, it all makes sense. It might go something like this. Speak, man. Where is my father? Dead. I won't be pedantic and read it directly on the rhythm or beat it all out. By all means, try that for yourself and see if there's anywhere else you'd put the two missing beats that make it ten, or a full iambic pentameter. Perhaps there's another pause after Claudius's answer, a moment for Laertes to take in this confirmation that his father really is gone. Gertrude is still flustered, and she breaks the silence with a deflection. But not by him. And again, the line is completed by Claudius. Let him demand his fill. Claudius's energy here is almost menacingly calm. He knows he has to treat Laertes like a bomb that needs to be diffused. Each of these lines feels like he's completing the rhythm, insisting on calm, on order, on this regular rhythm. Speak, man, where is my father? Dead. But not by him. Let him demand his fill. He's allowing Laertes space to speak, and presumably rant, which will of course give him time, lizard-like, to plan his next move. Laertes has already refused to be calm, because that would be to dishonour his parents, so what he says next will be important, and we will save it for the next episode. 
Do be sure to check out thehamletpodcast.com for the show notes that accompany this and every episode. While you're there, you can also explore the other offerings we have, including bonus episodes celebrating people who have made significant contributions to the life of this play, a series covering the basics of how to approach Shakespeare's writing, and the Book Club Project, reading one Shakespeare play a week until the end of 2020. On the website, you can also sign up for the newsletter and find links to follow the podcast on social media. Happy browsing, and I'll speak to you next time.